Our first reading is 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 to 15, on page 249. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madman that you have to bring this fellow, to, this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Our second reading is Psalm 34, um, page 478 of the Church Bibles. Of David, when he pretended to be insane, before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Legends, for reading. If we haven't met before, my name's Nick. I always love being here at 4 p.m. because I always feel welcome to the family. I mean, your kids beat me up. You know, I think it's with love, but they, they love to punch me and push me and all those good things. But kick me signs on me. You know, I, I take that as a sign of love, guys. Don't, don't, I'm not offended. It's all good. It's all good. No, I always love being here at 4 p.m. It's always a privilege. I feel like no matter what Sunday it is, there's a sense of worship. There's a sense of reverence for God. And so it's a, it's a real pleasure. And we're going to be hanging out in Psalm 34. So I'd love you to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Open it up. Um, but I should start with a quick story. Um, some of you may know I have recently come into identical twins. They were born uh, about four months ago, as of yesterday, actually. Um, they're Freya, Eden, um, 
Freya Edenwood and Aurora Sagewood. It's good if you can remember their names. But um, so they were born about four months ago. About three weeks after they were born, they got sick. They developed RSV, um, which is for us tends to be about a basic cold, but for babies it can kind of cause a bit of difficulties. The RSV for them became bronchiolitis, which then started causing their lungs to shut down. We had um, Aurora at Royal North Shore urgently transferred over to ICU at Sydney Kids. We had Freya up in the ward at Sydney Kids, then critical response down to ICU. If I'm being honest, there was a few moments where we didn't think either of them would live. And it was probably one of the hardest moments of my life, not just because of how obviously difficult it was, but I think it was one of the times I found it hardest to praise God, if I can just be honest. I don't know about your experiences with suffering, with trials, with difficulty, but I found it really hard to taste and see the goodness of God. I found it really difficult to praise Him. I found it difficult to find that moment. Now, through that period, I found it was a masterclass in learning what it means to see the goodness of God, even when things aren't going well. And I kind of wish someone had told me about Psalm 34 before we got there. If you'd just let me know, I wouldn't have had to go through that, right? But, alas, that's where I learned my lessons. Psalm 34 is something that, so it's a gift from God to teach us what it means to, to worship Him in season and out of season, in difficulty and in goodness. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know there's 150 Psalms, and you might just be fooled as you look at this one and think, oh, this is just another one of those Psalms of like, oh yeah, praise God, He's awesome. You know, they're, they're filled with that stuff, right? You get that verse one, it's just like, you know, I extol the Lord at all times. But don't be fooled, this isn't your usual psalm. Did you see verse zero, the like little context subscript? Check your Bible out. It says, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. David's context here, he has been anointed king, but he's running for his life because the current king wants to kill him to remove a threat from the throne. He's brought before a foreign king, and he has to pretend to be insane, literally frothing at the mouth, try and picture it, right? It's just like dripping down his face just to try and get out alive. And this is the man who's a king who's going to have to deal with this foreign king shortly. He gets delivered from this short little moment, but he's still on the run. He's still in effective exile. He's still threatened with his life being taken at any moment. And then he pens the words, verse 1, I will extol the Lord. Bless the Lord, praise the Lord at all times. Now, praise, worship is not reserved for moments where we feel good and things are going nice and smoothly. Praise is a decision that we make to give God the worship that he deserves in every season. Praise is a decision where we see the goodness of God. As we walk through the dark valleys, we say, I will seek your goodness no matter what, God. And that's why David beautifully invites us at verse two. I will glory in the Lord. Notice, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. This isn't for the person who's having a lovely time in life, sunshine, daisies, and rainbows. Please come worship Jesus. This is specifically for the afflicted. This is for those who are feeling the pain the suffering, the, the difficulties of this world. It's an invitation to come in. We need to reframe our picture of praise. 
It's not just that moment, you know, at a conference when that person's got two hands in the air and they're just worshiping with their eyes weeping. Or some of you, you've got your hands firmly in your pocket and your mouth perfect, and that's the moment you're having an experience of God. I don't know what your vibe is. But that's not what is happening here. It's not about an emotional experience of God because the keys are awesome. Rachel, we see you. You did a great job. But that's not what worship is. Worship is to step back and say, God, you can have all of me no matter what. So for me in hospital with the twins, I'm living in a little shoebox for about two weeks, and it was a moment to acknowledge my fear in the presence of God and not try and sort it out on my own in the peripheral. You know what I mean? Sometimes when you just get into a dark corner, you just kind of put your head down and try and sort it out yourself. To seek the goodness of God in difficulty for me was to actually take my fears and lay them at the feet of God and say, God, I know you are good. What is going on here? It was a moment to, to meet with God in suffering rather than I think what often we do is try and sort the issue out and then after it's all come good and we're standing on the other side when we're like, yeah, look how good God is, but we didn't actually talk to God at all during the suffering. No, this is a call to take that suffering and actually in the presence of God work through that. For me, it was a time to just, just start praying ceaselessly and actually see God turn up. I think this psalm is, is a promise that God does still act in power, that when we pray, he does deliver, he does help, he does come through. And so it's, it's a moment for us to press in, not pull back. And from start to finish, I think suffering is a moment for us to depend on God, really, at the end of the day. Suffering is often a gift from God. It doesn't seem like it. It's hard. It hurts. But it's through suffering that we can get a unique glimpse of God that we otherwise wouldn't have had. We can get a, an experience of his goodness that if everything was always good all the time, we never would have known him in the way that we knew him. So we need a new posture of praise. So I, I don't want to go through this whole psalm. There's just two really clear invitations from David that I think we need to grab hold of. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. That kind of captures that first section of the psalm. The second one is verse 9, fear the Lord, you holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. We're going to taste and see that the Lord is good, and we're going to fear the Lord. Doesn't seem like those two things should go together. No, he's so good, so now I'm afraid, right? But we're actually going to see those two things are actually intermingled. They need to come together, and it's not just something that's just stuck in the Old Testament. So first, let's have a look at taste and seeing the Lord is good. Verse 4 to 7, you get this beautiful picture of David coming out of this insane moment he says, verse four, I sought the Lord, he answered. Verse five, I looked to him and my face was radiant. I called and the Lord heard me. The angel of the Lord encamps around me. He's reflecting on the goodness of God. And so then he says to you and to me, look at what I went through, come with me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now this isn't some clinical, come and read a nice theological dictionary and come to some agreeable terms about who the infinite one is. This isn't sign up to a philosophy course and come to a really great theistic point of view that you can argue with your friends. This is taste and see. Taste, it evokes experience, right? Can you remember the best meal you've ever had? I remember on my honeymoon, we were in Vanuatu and we were at this restaurant and there was snails on the menu and I just got so excited. I love snails. Anyone like snails here? Anyone? A couple of you, bless you, bless you. I said, Beck, you need to eat these snails. And she said, there is no way in this world that I'm touching those snails, Nick. I said, they're delicious. You need to try them. You need to step out more. She says, Nick, this is our honeymoon. We're supposed to be in love, not pushing me to drink slimy, disgusting snails from the garden. I said, 
that's fair, but just try one, right? Okay, so she, she gets one of the snails. I'm just watching her, right, as closely as I can. She eats the snail, and you just see her face light up, and then you see it go dark because she realizes she doesn't want to admit that she loves it, right? She, she tastes it. She says, it's garlicky and buttery, you know, I said, is it slippery and slimy like you thought? She's like, no, it's just so nice. It's smooth. It's delicious. To this day, every anniversary we get, we hunt down some French and we eat snails, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an experience that lasts with you. It's not just facts that you know snails can be good. Learn that, okay? But it's an experience that, that becomes a part of you in a way. I want you to think about your greatest experiences. Maybe it was your first roller coaster. For me, it was the Beastie at Wonderland. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It was awesome. Maybe you've been skydiving. Anyone? It is my worst nightmare in the absolute world, but bless you. Maybe you had a great time. My little friend over here, she's been skydiving. Bless you, sister. <laughs> Maybe you remember your first kiss. The teenagers in the room, you've never been kissed. I know it. You would never do that to your parents. These experiences that, that define us. Maybe it's that moment you opened the letter to your uni degree of your dreams. Maybe it's when you got that promotion, you know where you were sitting at the time. It's, it's these things that just aren't just a memory, but something that, uh, that form part of us, right? We're being issued an invitation to come and taste the goodness of God. Not to just know the goodness of God, but to know the goodness of God. So it's taste, but then it's see. This isn't just like, hey, go to the optometrist and get your vision checked. If we get the right glasses, maybe you'll be able to see God correctly. I think this is more about beholding God. There's a, there's a beauty in just standing and planting yourself in the presence of God and just seeing him for who he truly is. It's the first moment when I saw Beck when we were dating and it was long distance. It had been about two months since I'd seen her in the flesh and I saw her turn the corner. I can still remember what she was wearing. I know it's romantic and soppy, but it's true. It's that maybe you've done the road trip down south and you come through Kayama and you're going up into the headlands and suddenly it just opens up and you see ocean. Do you know what I'm talking about? You just can't help but see the glory that is before you, the vastness. I remember I went to Fiji and I turned up in the night and we got into this sketchy van. I wasn't sure if I was being kidnapped or not, but we went out to this campsite in the jungle we went to sleep and we woke up the next morning and I can still just picture this beautiful vision. There's just mountains of green before me, just eclipsed by a sunrise of gold. And it was just the most beautiful natural sight that I've ever seen. It sticks with me. Come and see the God who shines greater than any sunrise you've ever imagined. Come and taste and, and, and just enjoy him with your whole being. I think this is a call to learn to experience the reality of what we already know. We need to experience the reality of what we already know. If you're not a believer here, we want you to see and enjoy God for the first time. But if you've been a believer for a long time, perhaps you've started to let things just kind of fade into the background. You believe about God. You know that you're saved. Jesus died for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, 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 cool. But God is kind of this um, feature that helps you through life rather than, I guess, the driving force of your existence. I think because the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint, sometimes we just kind of get into that autopilot mode. Just keep moving. Just keep moving. Whereas David is calling us to, to come to God in this moment right now and taste and see his goodness I think we're really good at knowing things about God. We're not as good at experiencing and delighting in Him. And for those of us like myself who have been long-term Sydney Anglicans, 
I'm, I, this is us. We are great at theology, man. We are so good at exegetical nuance. We're so, we love our Bible in a year reading plans. We don't ask how's your faith going. We ask how your reading plan's going, right? We, we really appreciate having good doctrine, having a thoughtful theological framework. In fact, some of us are like, let's go learn Greek and Hebrew. And can I just say, I'm all for that. When I was in year 11, I went on a camp in youth ministry and we learned the five points of Calvinism, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, just don't worry about it. If you do, you know I'm the nerd of all nerds. I love it. These things are an amazing opportunity to see God. Sometimes I think they can become the end in itself in letting us come to God with them. Now, I think if you were someone like myself who just froths on sitting down with your Bible and a commentary and your notepad, and that can be a moment that ushers you into the presence of God, or it can be a dry process of elucidating what you already believe. We need to taste and see, not just look from a distance and remember some facts about God. Does that make sense to anyone? We need to come and enjoy the God who made us. We need to experience him. We have been made for relationship. If you come to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3, it's a picture of standing and beholding the glory of God. And it's in beholding his glory that we are transformed into the image of Christ. We actually need to come grips and face to face with God, not just looking at him from a distance. So how do we do it? What does it mean to taste and see? Well, the New Testament picks up on the language a couple of times. There's, you might want to write this down if you want to look at it later. You might not. That's fine too. Hebrews 6.5, 1 Peter 2.3, it picks up on this language of tasting the goodness of God. And in both situations, it's referring to when somebody has become a Christian and in that moment of conversion has, has come to taste the goodness of God. Now, I don't know about you, whether you grew up into your faith or perhaps you're not there at all. I became a Christian at 14, and I remember sitting in this auditorium with 2,000 other teenagers. I was sitting there, I was listening to this preacher, and I just felt like my world was shattering as he talked about a God who was holy and righteous and that I was broken and sinful. And I just, I just remember thinking, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? As he moved along, he got to this idea of the grace of Jesus, and I just remember this, I couldn't describe it other than peace and love just overwhelming me. As I realized, despite my brokenness, his love was more, right? That is tasting and seeing, and I think in 1 Peter 2, 3 particularly, he's saying to come and taste and see God again is to remember who God truly is as he rescued us to come back to that moment where you realized the depth of your sin and saw the goodness of his grace and were rescued in the love of Jesus. This is a call as in Revelation 2, which we did earlier this year, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says, you've abandoned your first love. To come and taste the goodness of God is to return to that love that you had at first, to, to be restored to that gospel that sits as the foundation of everything that we are. We don't move past the grace of Jesus. We go deeper into it. It's everything for us. And so that's what David's calling us to. Verse four, seek the Lord, because when we seek, he answers us. Verse five, those who look to him are radiant. When we looked at this word, it's like they glow, like Moses coming down from the mountain. 
Like in Isaiah, this word gets used again, and it's like a mother who thought she'd lost her children, and then they were returned to her, and her face was radiant as she glimpsed her kids coming back. Isaiah 65. You know, we are six, we call out and the Lord hears us. Verse seven, we believe that he surrounds us. These are all amazing truths that perhaps we believe with our heads, but need to filter down to our hearts. And so this is a call, I think, to make this a part of our regular faith walk, to, to move past, I guess, just constantly um, dwelling in the truth that we believe and perhaps moral obligation where we need to do the right thing and come grips with the fact that we were made for relationship with God, to know Him, to love Him, and to be loved with Him. So that's to be taste and see. But then you go to verse 9, and it goes to fear the Lord, which doesn't seem to compute, right? <laughs> you can come and you can enjoy how good God is, but make sure you don't enjoy Him too much because you've got to be afraid, all right? I don't think that's what it's saying. Um, your instinct might be to think maybe this is just an Old Testament thing. You know, the Old Testament fire brimstone judgment God, the New Testament lovey-dovey everything's forgiveness God. Apart from that being a false dichotomy, fearing the Lord is something that comes through into the New Testament as much as it is in the Old. You can check out Luke 18 and there's a judge who doesn't fear God and that's why he's unrighteous. You can go to 2 Corinthians 7 and it's a picture of the God's people growing into holiness because they fear the Lord. But I think the most useful verse for us is Philippians 2.12, where Paul's writing to a church, and he says this, this iconic phrase, you might have heard it, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation, you have been saved, rescued, redeemed and forgiven by the love of Jesus. It's done. But at the same time, you've got to work it out with fear and trembling. It feels like a bit of a paradox. It feels like we're stepping into a weird, uncomfortable place. Is our salvation contingent? Do we have to be good people to be saved? Do we have to, what's going on here? Let me help you with a, uh, sorry, let me help you with a quote from a guy called Michael Reeves. He wrote a book called The Fear of the Lord. Telling. It's about 80 pages. It cost me $10 on my Kindle if you're interested. I recommend. He says this, the living God is infinitely perfect and overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of our love for God. Does that make sense? Let me read that last line again. In a way, the fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of our love for God. As we come to the cross of Christ, the heart of our salvation, there's trembling, right? Because if you see Jesus hanging on a cross clearly, you can't help but notice two things. One, my sin is so revolting and dark, it required God himself to die for me. And two, God loves me so much that he would go to those lengths, even though I've done some terrible things. Right? Those two things come hand in hand. And so you can sit there in grace. You do nothing to deserve it, but there's still a sense of reverence that you can't believe that we've been loved like this, right? We can't believe that God would go to the lengths that he went to to make sure that we could return to him so that we could be saved. So the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. 
It's about coming to him with a sense of reverence and awe and grappling with who God truly is. He's not just this, you know, lovely person in the sky who says, oh, no, you're forgiven. He's a just and holy God who, kill, who sent his own son to be killed on a cross so that we could be forgiven. The cost was incredible because his love is absolutely incredible. I wonder if you've had moments where God has been more clear to you than ever before. I wonder what it was like. For me, I find myself overwhelmed is probably the best word to describe it when I have a moment where God comes in power, for lack of a better term. When I feel like the usual sense of God's presence, because he's always with us, when my awareness of his presence increases and it feels like the spirit is doing something significant, what I experience is a sense of overwhelm because I can't help when I stand in the presence of God but feel my unworthiness. But I also can't help but feel the sense of, of beauty that I get to be here, that he looks at me and calls me son, that he looks at me with love in his eye, even though I still stuff it up. There's a sense of, of love and, and beauty coupled with awe and reverence, and I think that is what we're talking about when it comes to the fear of the Lord. The problem, I think, is often we fail to have a fear of God. Perhaps this is new to you and you've never thought this through because we kind of leave it in the Old Testament, Right? I think sometimes we fail to fear the Lord because we have maybe a deficient view of the gospel. We focus so much on love and grace and forgiveness to the neglect of the holiness of God and the reality of our sin. But you can only appreciate the whole beauty of the gospel when you realize what you're being saved from, right? I think sometimes we have a deficient view of the gospel. Or sometimes I think we're so introspective and fixed on our own circumstances, that God becomes a footnote rather than a heading. He becomes the background of our life rather than the goal of our life. And so we can start to fear all the difficulties around us, or we can fear God. Those are the options. You can't have both. You look at verse four. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. In the same psalm where he talks about we need to fear the Lord, he says equally that the Lord delivered him from all his fears. You can have a fear of the Lord or you can fear everything else. But when you have the fear of the Lord, he banishes all other fears. Now, that's not to say that everything's going to be beautiful and sunshines, lollipops and rainbows. That'd be lovely. There's still difficulty. There's still pain. There's still suffering. This psalm really is in the context of suffering. David's saying all of these things while he's on the run for his life. And more importantly, this psalm has a prophetic thrust to it. If you come with me to verse 18, it's bizarre, but it's beautiful. It says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. See, that kind of sounds like if you just kind of trust God, he'll save you, right? But then you get to verse 20. He protects all. All his bones, not one of them will be broken. That, that single verse gets picked up in John chapter 19. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's dead. The soldiers come, kids block your ears, come to break his legs to make sure that he stops breathing and dies. But they come to Jesus and they realize, well, he's already dead. So they don't actually break his legs. Instead, they get a spear, stick it in his side, and out comes water and blood separately, revealing that, yes, he is in fact dead. And John says, this happened so that the prophecy would be fulfilled, that not one of his bones would be broken. So Psalm 34 can't be about you having the, the blessed life of perfection that we all want 
when it actually is pointing forward to the Son of God dying on a cross, right? There is no sense of everything being perfect and awesome. I think what we've got here is a picture of a greater deliverance and a greater joy to be had than any earthly blessing, than any worldly circumstance being filled. So we're gonna walk through some difficult moments, but so did Jesus. He was the man who feared God perfectly, and he obviously did not have an easy ride. His bones weren't broken, but that didn't stop them from breaking his whole body. We're gonna endure a lot of pain and suffering along the way. I shared at the beginning about something that I've gone through recently. I think if we turn this into an open mic and we all got up to share some of the pain in our life, there would be some really terrible things that you've been through. And I wanna say I'm sorry that you've gone through that. But the path of the cross leads through death before it comes to resurrection. The seed needs to be sown before it can rise into new life. God promises us so much more than protection in this world. He promises us life to come. Now, don't hear me wrong. This psalm does have a a real sense of when we pray, God answers. He does deliver. So don't stop praying. But when things don't go the way that we'd like them to, look to Jesus and see the path that he walked. There is a confidence that Jesus, while dying, comes and rises to new life, now seated at the right hand of God for all eternity with glory upon glory upon glory. And that's our future. That's where we're going. And that's why tasting and seeing the goodness of God and the fear of the Lord beautifully come together because we can taste and see God's goodness in every dark valley knowing that the the mystery of the cross is that we will one day be made perfect, that one day we will stand before the God that made us and our joy will be bigger than anything we've experienced in this world. So coming back to where we started, I learned a lesson through the hospital and I'm so thankful to God that he answered prayers and kept our our twins alive. I, I just cannot see any other alternative other than God protected them. And I'm so thankful. This psalm for me is is the psalm of 2022, the psalm of my twins. But so much more than that. It's so much more than that. Whatever your season, whatever you're going through, good, bad, difficult, suffering, taste and see God's goodness. Don't, Don't leave God as some idea that you believe in. He is greater than anything you could ever imagine. Taste and see his goodness. And come to him, and as you come to him, Don't be afraid when you see his holiness and majesty and glory because he is the infinite one who made all things. He's the one who made you. He's the one who made you for him. And so come and taste and see his goodness. Let me pray. We'll keep moving. Father God, you are majestic in your holiness. You are ineffable in your justice. You are glorious in in all that you are in this world. We wanna thank you so much that despite how, how perfect you are, you still lavish us with the love of your son, Jesus. God, please, would you break through our earthly defenses that stop us from truly coming and tasting your goodness? Would you lift our eyes afresh to see Jesus? Would you take the gospel that we know that we believe and show us again why it is the greatest news that rocked our entire worlds? Please, Lord, would you help us live towards you with you as our goal, our purpose, our everything, that we might not put you in the background but put you in the foreground. God, we ask all this that you might get all the glory.